Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, this is Colin. One of the great pleasures of my life, maybe pleasures is the wrong word, is hunting down the Obits pages of the New York Times where the lives of really fascinating people are chronicled. And sometimes they are people that you didn't know about, people you never knew existed, but created or were involved in some fascinating aspect of recent life. Obits, they used to be a cherished institution at virtually every newspaper in America. Now they're rather perfunctory, except in a few places. We will explore the joys of the obituary on this show from the past. I'm going to talk to you a minute or two right now, a little bit more than I do usually before we leap into a show, because there's a, a few things I want you to know. We're going to be talking about obituaries today, a subject very close to my heart, um, for reasons <laughs> that you'll see, I guess. Uh, and um, the occasion for doing that is that the movie Obit is about really the most elite form of of obit writing. The New York Times uses some of its best writers as obit writers. When you've accomplished a lot in other forums, other uh, areas of the New York Times, you can get to be an obit writer. That's not the way it is in almost anywhere else, really. And I want you to understand that before we plunge into the New York Times part of this. Later in the show, you'll also hear from a young woman, a journalism student at Medill, who was asked to uh, do a prepared obit, and what's called an advanced obit, of somebody she did it about me, uh, which meant that I had to talk to her about that. Anyway, you'll meet Kate in a little while. We'll also, we all also wanted to talk to at least one person, let you hear from one person who's still kind of doing the small town obit writing thing. So you'll hear from a writer from Alaska who does that small town obit writing thing. But, you know, getting ready for this show, I read some amazing obits, like amazing obits. One of them was for a guy named Michael Elliott, the obit appeared in the Portland Oregonian. It had lines like this. After college at University of Virginia, he moved to Long Beach, California, where, among other things, he joined a semi-pro basketball team that toured the country playing exhibition games dressed as women. But the kicker was near the end. It said, Mike ran out of family long ago and is survived by his ex-wife and best friend, Teresa Elliott. Though their marriage ran aground, their friendship only grew stronger, and hers was the last voice Mike heard. And the last thing she said to him was, Donald Trump has been impeached. Upon hearing that, he took his final gentle breath. His earthly work concluded. Now, 
as you might have guessed, this isn't really an obituary in the sense of an obituary. This is what used to be called a paid death notice, except now newspapers call those obituaries because they don't have obituary writers anymore. They don't have obituary staffs. Because of what happened to newspapers, that whole thing has kind of collapsed. So this is this, I mean, a, a, an obituary writer like the one you're about to meet would want to know a lot more about the barnstorming drag women's <laughs> basketball team. You you have to have a lot of details about that. But Somebody who's not used to writing for publication can sometimes do an amazingly good job in a certain way. So similarly, and this one shares the quality of an ex-spouse who stayed very close to and loving of the person. This is an obit for um, Colleen Sheeran Singer in the Bangor Daily News. She died from complications related to her opiate addiction. She was a, a drug addict for most of her adult life. Um, and the obit writer describes what that does to a person. He writes, while Colleen was capable of great compassion and would give the shirt off her back to one less fortunate, she was also at times a con artist, thief, and liar. So you don't usually see things like that in an obituary. The guy who wrote this, her ex-husband, who refers to himself as the author of this obituary, he writes, the author of this obituary, who grew up comfortably removed from such things, thought he was educated but had no idea. Addicts shoot up to avoid being deathly ill, and because the disease heightens also the psychological desire for the drug and the needle, real addicts rarely manage to get high. They just scratch and claw every day to avoid dope sickness. Colleen wanted to get back into a methadone clinic, but LePage, that's the governor of Maine, and enough Republicans in the legislature said no to the Medicaid expansion. That's another thing that's remarkable about this obituary. He tears into Governor LePage of Maine repeatedly. And then at the end, he writes that she survived by, and he mentions the various friends and ex-boyfriends, and she sa he says, and her adorable chihuahua named Squeak and the author of this obituary, whose life was made more difficult, but also much better for having known her. Well, that's kind of a beautiful turn of phrase and a very complicated sentiment. But these were paid o obituaries. They're, they are, as I say, what used to be called paid death notices, as opposed to obituaries, which were written by the professional staff of newspapers. But for the most part, newspapers have stopped doing this. They don't have anybody delegated to it. When I first joined the world of newspapers, the obit job was, for the most part, assigned to new arrivals, new reporters. It was kind of the lowest rung in the entry level. And the reason for that was if you make a mistake in an obituary, people complain right away. So the newspaper could assess your ability to get things down accurately by having you write five obituaries of just everyday people. Because if you screw up, the family will call the newspaper right away. That's how most newspapers handled that. And most of them don't even do that anymore. But there's an exception. There are a few exceptions. But the most notable one really is the New York Times. They have some – I mean basically if you've accomplished a lot somewhere else at the New York Times, maybe you get to go and join this elite monkish staff of obit writers. So we're going to talk about that today as well as the other things that I mentioned. Bruce Weber is joining us. He's been on the show before. But he wrote obituaries for the New York Times for eight years until he retired. Still writes advance obits. Those are the obits written for people who aren't dead yet for the Times on a freelance basis. Also joining us, Vanessa Gould, produced and directed the documentary Obit, which is now available on iTunes and Amazon, places like that. Okay, that's enough of me talking. Uh, I'm going to start with Bruce Weber. Hi, Bruce. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Colin. Nice to talk to you again. So, Did you say that I was monkish? Yeah, I think there is something monkish. Uh, about at least about the world depicted in in that in the movie Obit, in which you are one of the principal 
players. Um, and I, well, by monkish, I mean, and I think you would be the first to say this, compared to the other things that you've done a, as a newspaper writer, which like, occasionally I've been even quite intrepid, this is work where you rarely leave the New York Times yeah, building, Yeah, well, we correct? are sort of sequestered. That's true. I'd have to agree with that. I want to ask you, first of all, about sort of who gets to be uh, commemorated in this particular way. There are obvious uh, people who are going to get uh, big obits, and you've written a lot of those big obits, uh, whether it's Yogi Berra or Edward Albee. Um, but then there's a lot of other people who maybe aren't super famous, uh, but who n- deserve to be and are commemorated. Is there a way you can kind of describe the criteria for that? Yeah, I can, but l- let me let me give a little background here sure. first. I mean, the interesting thing that you were saying about uh, you know the people, the obits that are now published uh, in small papers, or or that have always been published in small papers. Uh, the choice is, uh, it, you know, everybody has to sort of decide what belongs in their paper, and in those small papers, those regional papers, um, they commemorate the people who read that newspaper and lived in the, you know, lived within the localities that those newspapers covered. The Times uh, thinks of itself. Know, for for good or ill these days as an international paper, uh, which kind of expands the territory that uh, that they need to cover. Uh, Bill McDonald, who is the obituaries editor, liked to say that uh, you know there are about between fifty five and sixty million people who die between who die every year. Uh, it's about the population of Italy. Uh, and the New York Times writes obituaries of about twelve or thirteen hundred of them, so that uh, there's a significant amount of triage uh, that that has to go on. A certain, you know, a, a fairly substantial selection process, um, which is, I guess, the question you were asking: is how do we how do we winnow winnow that down? And the answer is basically that uh, you know we consider obituaries to be uh, news stories, and the um, and so uh, the way we judge is whether the death of a person is of news value. Uh, is it, uh, and the, you know, it gets a little more complicated than that, <clears throat> because uh, obituaries are different from uh, stories in uh, other sections of the newspaper, and that the news is always the same. Uh, somebody died, mm-hmm. and so the value, the the, the decision about uh, the news value of that is what you're going to say next. Is why the demise of this person is. Uh, is consequential to the people who are going to be reading the newspaper, and, that, and that's really the question that we ask: is the uh, is the life of the person uh, who died going to be of interest to the general reader of the New York Times? Uh, is, it going to, is it going to be helpful? Is it going to be interesting? Is it going to be informative? Although, I mean, I think sometimes it's going to be interesting and informative, not because the person, him or herself, is legendary, but I mean, I, I for those of us who really love New York Times obituaries. Uh, speaking for only for myself, I guess, but also for the poet Billy Collins, with whom I had a long conversation about this. Okay. We we love the obituaries about people that we've never heard of who have been responsible for something that we have heard of. So, for example, your colleague Marguerite Fox, I think, wrote uh, an obituary of the guy who invented the barcode, you know, and, and, and got into exactly how he thought up the idea for the barcode. He was drawing lines on the sand on the beach or something. You wrote uh, uh, an obit for a guy who has a kind of disputed claim to authorship of the Hokey Pokey, right? Correct, correct. <laughs> Robert Deegan. 
Yeah. And, and, and so uh, tell that story. T- just tell the story of putting that together, because one of the problems facing you with that obit is he doesn't have a clear claim to the hokey pokey. Right. Well, the, uh, the, he, he does have a, he did have a copyright for it. Um, and the problem is, I, you know, it was easy to document the fact that he had a copyright for the, uh, for, for the hokey pokey, but then it turned out that there were other, um, there were recordings of similar songs and uh, other claims that could be uh, of uh, of similar melodies that could be documented that uh, you know that went uh, back uh, uh, at least a century. Uh, so you know, there were soldier songs in both uh, the United States and Britain. There were other songs that were. Um, that were written one in Ireland and one uh, and, and one other one here in the United States that were that were very similar. There were a number of lawsuits in, involved over the, involved over this. It's undisputed that Mr. Deegan uh, wrote a version of the song, but uh, whether he may have borrowed it from somebody else, whether somebody else may have borrowed it from him, that's sort of the thing that's up in the air. <laughs> right, and it, it was a it, it was a complicated. Uh, it was, there was a kind of down the rabbit hole uh, sense of um, sense that I got during the research because every time I turned around, there was another uh, there was another sort of claim to originality um, by someone else, and that it came earlier and then earlier and then earlier. It was it, it, quite an interesting story. It was, and 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 you did go down the rabbit hole and explore the connections between the phrase "hokey pokey" and the phrase "hocus pocus," and right. in many respects, it, it was more a bit about the song and its complicated history, and then it was about the 104-year life, I, I think, uh, of this particular guy. I did, Correct. I did notice that the headline. And I think your headline writers have their own kind of fun with this. This is Robert Deegan, who had a hand in the hokey pokey, right. dies at 104. Uh, there was one said, that said, William J. L. Sladen, expert on penguin libidos, is dead at 96. Now, there probably were lots of ways that you could describe William J. L. Sladen. But could you say something about that? I often feel as though the headline writers... In, in some of these slightly more whimsical obituaries, if that's the right word, whimsical, are, are having their own little bit of fun, too. Well, you know, listen, like any section of the newspaper, um, the obits, uh, any writer and any headline writer and the editors, they want you to read the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want the story to be well-written, you want the, and, you know, you want the lead to be inviting, and you want the headline to peak. Uh, pique readers' curiosity to get them to look at the story. Um, so, if it's clever, in addition to accurate, so much the better. You know. Uh, <laughs> so, Vanessa Gould, I want to add you to this conversation. How did you come to be making a, a movie about this particular topic? This uh, this group of people who are keeping the standards of obit writing so colorfully alive. Well, first, hi, Bruce. <laughs> hi, Vanessa. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I've got Jack Cadden um, here with me. <laughs> Jack Cadden. Oh, tell him I said hi. Yeah, Jack Cadden, who's an, uh, <laughs> who was an editor there at the Times, also a former editor of mine at the Hartford Current, also featured in this movie. Um, so, yeah, Wonderful. Vanessa, uh, t- tell us about the genesis of this. How did you choose this topic? Well, you know, in, it's it's a little bit of a long story, but um, in sort of this concisest way, it, it was a story that kind of found me. Um, I, I really didn't know anything about obituaries, whether the the small town kind or the 
the, the, the kind that were written in the Times, but one of the subjects of a film that I had made a couple of years ago passed away, and he was an, he was an unknown artist, but I sent um, a bunch of announcements to newspapers around the world about his death, just in, an, in sort of in a knee-jerk kind of way, you know, uh, within the hours after he died, and the only the only paper that was interested in talking to me was in fact the Times, which I seemed to me the the the, the, the greatest stretch of all. Um, and uh, Marguerite Fox called me, and the process of trying to sort of piece his life together just days after he had died, and, and some of the problems we encountered, and the emotions that came up that went far beyond just simple grief or or mourning. Um, really kind of arrested me. And then I, then I obviously started to look at the, the obituaries page in the Times um, on a daily basis and saw that there was some, some pretty um, amazing cultural anthropology at work. And uh, I was pretty amazed at the fact of how just, you know, getting to like what you guys have been talking about, how, how rich history is when you sort of look and how much we forget. Um, so so the, doc- the documentary filmmaker in me, you know, was sort of like, okay, this is, this is absolutely riveting. And I, I put most of the other ideas that I was working on aside <laughs> and, and approached the time. So um, we'll, we'll play a little clip of this. Uh, in, in this clip, you're going to hear uh, journalists talking about, well, basically what obit writing is all about. The one thing all the subjects have in common, besides being dead, is that their lives had an impact of one sort or another. The word impact is infinitely elastic. That impact can be of world-shaking importance. You know, when Brezhnev died, that was the end of a particular era in one of the great social experiments of the 20th century, beginning of the decline of the Soviet Empire. And then you get to the guy who invented the slinky. And he had an impact, too. Millions of people bought the slinky and took pleasure in it. If you weigh in one hand slinky and in the other hand Soviet Union, 20th century, obviously one hand is going to be dipped way down here and the other hand is going to be way up here. But I'll bet a lot of people turn to the slinky first to read about it. So Vanessa Gould... um uh, the, the maker of this particular movie, of which we just heard a clip, I am definitely in the slinky camp. I want to. Uh, maybe that makes me a lightweight, but I don't think so. I think one of the things that newspapers have a struggle doing sometimes is documenting exactly this part of uh, of life. That that you know the huge upheavals in the world and the the actions of kings and presidents are pretty easy to spot. Uh, sometimes this stuff doesn't seem to even turn up until the obituary. You're absolutely right. I mean, to each his own, obviously, but I think many readers that, I, that I've that i talked to now after, you know, working on this for several years um, echo the same sentiment. And some people want, you know, a complete picture of, of a life that they knew a lot about, but I think there's a, an intrinsic joy in, um, in really learning something new and seeing how somebody's life evolved and all the sort of twists and turns that may have... Uh, you know, been a part of something that, that that they did know about, and it's it's just a sort of a more human picture, I think. And um, admittedly, the the team that worked on the film was also in that camp, and we had um, so much fun going back through 
the Times obituaries from the past 10 or 15 years as written by the people, the writers featured in the film and, and reading their obituaries and really trying to pull out some of the, the, the uh, below the radar figures and, and trying to bring those stories to life. Yeah, you rapped too early to get the penguin libido guy, but um, <laughs> but that would have fit. That's not the only one. Right. <laughs> There's so many that have come out since we since right. we locked. But and I love that. I really do love that. Well, one of the things you also explore, and we're going to talk about it with more with Bruce also in in the second segment of our show, is the whole world of the advance obit, the obit that's written uh, ahead of time before a person uh, dies. And and I know one thing that didn't really make it into the movie because you couldn't put everything in is that sometimes the people who write those obituaries die before the people who those obituaries are about die, if that syntactically makes any sense. Yeah, it's this, it's this, uh, it's a phenomenon that sort of just feels magnetically interesting to me. And I, and I, I wish it had fit into the film somewhere, but to think about a paper like the New York Times, which has, you know, staff all around the world working on deadline to capture what's going on contemporaneously here and now, urgent information. And then there's a corner of the paper where you can actually have a page of history written about someone who has recently died by someone who is also dead. It just seems like a, a wonderful thing <laughs> to think about in terms of shedding light on some of the oddities in and around obituaries. And the way that happened um, is that, you know, two famous examples are Mel Gusso and Vincent Canby, who are both um, prolific writers for the times covered theater and culture and, um, they they wrote many obituaries uh, uh, that outlived them and that are still probably on file. And what the Times will do then is have, um, you know, a, a, a reporter update, add the, the information that's necessary when someone does die. Um, and usually they'll, they'll share a byline or, or cite a contributing reporter to those uh, pieces. But there's something just that's very, I don't know, it's a little... Surreal, oh, you know, I, I, but I'd like uh, can I throw in something here? Yeah, Bruce, Bruce, go ahead, Bruce. You know, as somebody as somebody who has uh, written dozens of advance obituaries that are still on file at the paper, I know you said it was wonderful when the writer dies before the uh, <laughs> when the writer dies before the subject, but, but I would like to say that this is not anything that I aspire to. Right. And uh, nor does anyone who writes advance obituaries. <laughs> Uh, you know, as much pleasure as this sort of thing gives you, I just wanted to let you know that this is not something that, uh, you know, that really is a, you know, a, a, anything that journalists look forward to. I can hear Jack Cadden chuckling darkly in the background there. <laughs> That's me. You're right. <laughs> so, so, Jack, are you on the line right now? Yes, I am. Okay, so I want to ask you something, because you and I worked at a different newspaper, and, and I, I think I, I've tried to emphasize this as much as possible, but it's worth driving home one more time. You know, I don't know. There was this guy named the Abbot of Sponheim who, uh, in 1492, wrote a, a um, an essay in praise of scribes 50 years after the invention of movable type. And what he was really writing about was a bunch of people who were going to be less and less important in the world, but he thought they should be really important in the world. And in a way, I feel like, you know, this movie is, is is chronicling the remnants of a culture that used to be much more robust, right? You know, if you go to other newspapers, there just isn't anything like this unit that you guys comprised. I think that's I think that's absolutely true. And in in in, in the movie, 
Bill McDonald, the, the obituaries editor, says basically we're the last ones doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Los Angeles Times gave up its obits uh, uh, team uh, some years ago, and the, the Washington Post is, has shrunk its team, and so uh, the Times is one of the last places where this is really done. Which I don't know. I mean, as as digital life makes it more easy easy to gauge readership, I feel like readership of really good obituaries, whether it's about David Bowie or the inventor of the uh, of the slinky, that's going to be kind of high. I mean, if you were writing stuff that you want people to read, don't people love reading obits? Uh, absolutely, I think that's true. And I'll tell you, when Leonard Nimoy died, <laughs> Mr. Spock. Yeah. That got more traffic on our website than practically anything in history at the time. It was really quite something. So it's it's weird. It's sort of counterproductive to shy away from obituaries. It's it's it surprises me. I mean, I know that newspapers have had to drop all kinds of missions, but it seems as though they gave up this one kind of easily. Well, I might interject a, a oh, observation yeah. that I've had for a while here, which is that you know one of the things. Um, you want to do is not write a Wikipedia page of somebody's life, even if it's done, you know, well. And I think at the Times, they have the benefit of these journalists who have covered so many beats and can talk to colleagues who know, have have pretty unique insights into the complex lives that they're writing about. And they also have the morgue, Mm -hmm. which um, allows, you know, at least this is, this was something that I felt I observed, allows the, the writers at the Times to, write an obituary that might not be possible by other news organizations. I don't know if Bruce or Jack wants to speak to that. I, well, I can, I can first of all speak to it, Vanessa. The, in 1998, my father died, and I alerted the Times. I had no idea whether my father warranted a New York Times obit. Uh, Rick Lyman wrote the obit. Um, it had all kinds of stuff in it that I didn't know about my father, and I knew my father really well. It wasn't like he was, wasn't around all the time. <laughs> but they had access to stuff about my father that I didn't have. So that may answer your question. Yeah. Um, hey, we have to take a break here. I'm going to get in so much trouble if I don't. Uh, Vanessa Gould, by the way, is the director and producer of the documentary Obit, and now available on iTunes, Amazon. We'll be back with more of Bruce. You're also going to meet, uh, apparently, the person destined to chronicle my sad little life. To celebrate poetry. While he drinks his morning tea. While he drinks his morning tea. While he drinks the obituary. How did you end up writing obituaries? Well, I had dreams of being a writer, but I had no voice. What am I saying? I had no talent. So I ended up in obituaries, which is the Siberia of journalism. Tell me what you do. I want to imagine you in Siberia. Really? Mm. <laughs> well, we call it the Abits page. There's three of us, me, Graham and Harry. Harry, he's the editor. He decides who we're going to lead with. We make calls, check facts. At six, we stand around the computer and look at the next day's page, make final changes. And a few euphemisms for our own amusement. Such as? He was a convivial fellow. Meaning he was an alcoholic. (laughs) 
he valued his privacy, gay, enjoyed his privacy, raging queen. <laughs> what would my euphemism be? She was disarming. That's not a euphemism. Yes, it is. We're back. We're talking about obituaries. We have with us Bruce Weber, who wrote obituaries for the New York Times for eight years, is featured in the movie Obit. Uh, and although retired uh, from the Times, he still writes advanced obits for the Times on a freelance basis. You may also hear occasionally the voice of Jack Cadden, an editor at the New York Times, featured also in the documentary Obit. Uh, you're going to meet Kate Samini in just a second. Uh, we'll, I'll tell you then who she is. But before we get to Kate, and while I have that line open, I'm kind of juggling phone lines around here a little bit. Uh, but we had a call from Luther in Glastonbury, who I believe has seen this movie, Obit, and it, it affected him in a certain way. Hi, Luther. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks, uh, Colin. Uh, three quick things. Uh, first of all, if you look at me in my life, uh, at least in my mind, I'm a little uh, junior version of Al Franken, okay. a funny side and a serious side. So my wife got this book, The Other Talk, which forced us to write our obituaries, rewrite our wills, and tell our children what we wanted for our final wishes, and I had some good jokes in my obituary, and then I saw the movie Obit, and I said, oh, yeah, I can't start it with when I was born and who my parents were. I put in an extra paragraph to uh, hopefully draw the, the reader in, and, uh, you know, I want my celebration to be a lot of fun for people, and I've seen ones like that. And that's what I want. Right. Increasingly, these uh, obits, which are often written by the person before that person dies or written by somebody very close to the person, if they have a sense of humor or a little flair, they often go viral on social media. All right. Now I'm going to introduce you to somebody who I heard from. Out of the blue, I think it's fair to say. Uh, her name is Kate Samini. She is a freelance sports journalist who's working on her master's in journalism at Northwestern University. Uh, and so, well, Kate, maybe I'll let you explain. How is it that I heard from you? Why did I get an email from you? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I, we were charged with uh, writing an obit for somebody who is from our hometown. And I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, uh, and actually... My grandmother, I lived with her for most of my life. She was a big listener of yours. So uh, I, I basically I heard from you pretty much every afternoon when I was growing up on WTIC. And then, um, so you were one of the first people that popped to mind when I was asked to, to write about somebody from my hometown, somebody who was, they said, not necessarily too close to you, um, but uh, well-known enough that, that it would be interesting to do. So, Bruce, maybe you, as an experienced hand, can uh, talk about what happens when you contact somebody that you're doing an advance obit for. I mean, are, uh, as Kate will tell you, I did sort of the email equivalent of a sort of monk scream or something. Uh, <laughs> but, I, I, Bruce, in general, are people open to this idea? Well, first of all, I have to say that if I can possibly avoid it, which I almost always can, I don't contact people. Who's there. there you go. Um, the, most of the time, when uh, at the times, because uh, because we are looking into the lives of people who are, you know, who, who have had big newsworthy lives, uh, you know, people who, if they died at uh, ten o'clock in the morning, we would have uh, a miserable time cobbling together a comprehensive obit uh, in a day's time. I mean, that's what the advance obits are for. I mean, for um, uh, basically famous, accomplished people. So that we don't get uh, so that we don't get caught with our pants down when it, when the unexpected happens. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so you don't necessarily being, have, you that, don't necessarily have to call Edward Albee up and say I'm yeah, working exactly. on this. That being budget. said, most of the most of the people that we write obituaries about have been covered fairly extensively uh, in other sources over the uh, over the years. Uh, so uh, you know, many of them have written books of their own. Many of them, uh, you know, many of them have been interviewed dozens, if not if not hundreds of times. So the sources that you have uh, to to cobble together a life. Um, uh, you know, in advance, at least, uh, you know, 95% of it, the, uh, you know, the significant newsworthy portions of the life are already pretty well documented. Uh, and that's what, uh, and that's what we rely on as, uh, you know, in, uh, to write advance obits. Now, that being said, uh, there is no law against trying to interview the, uh, interview the person. I, I haven't had any luck with that. <laughs> well, I mean, so, so- I, I've asked, I've asked, Three or four times, fairly famous people to interview them for their obituary, and, and, and every single one of them has freaked out and basically done the equivalent of hanging up the phone. So, <laughs> so I didn't hang up the phone on Kate. I, I actually did agree to talk to you, Kate. But first of all, I'm curious to know what your professor was telling you about this. I mean, unless you grow up to be, or you're already grown up, but as you as you uh, age into your career, if you turn out to be Bruce Weber, who's a uh, you know written uh, about a lot of sports uh, figures it, like like Yogi Berra and Choo Choo Coleman and people like that, you'll be writing some obits. But there's also a good chance you'll never write an obit because of Obits don't usually happen. At least they don't happen as much these days. Why did your professor have you do this? Um, I think he was really interested in seeing how we could write profiles, but he wanted to make it a little extra difficult. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> I, I remember. I remember at one point I, I asked you the the my favorite question, which I was really excited to ask you. I knew it would be impossible you know, how did you want to be remembered? And the, just the silence I was met with was beautiful. <laughs> um, he, he, he really did suggest that we try and get in touch with people just and, and, and not tell them that it was a profile, tell them that it was an open so that it, it gave them the chance to um, understand where the questions were coming from and um, it gave us a broader scope to dig into. There were a few people, I believe, who reached out to their subjects and, and said it was a profile. And... Um, all of them reported that they had a very difficult time just getting the full scope of this person's life because all they wanted to talk about was their very recent work. Right. Well, I think also, you know, when you asked me how I wanted to be remembered, one reason for the silence, besides just how <laughs> appalled I was by having to think about this at all. It's well, terrifying. <laughs> what, yeah, there, but also the problem with, and maybe it's a reason why Bruce doesn't talk as much to some, to the people that he's doing advanced obits of, is you wind up being put in a difficult position because I would like to be remembered in a very laudatory way as a, a, um, a pillar of the community and an upholder of the greatest principles uh, and a brilliant user of words and a person who was right about things like 92% of the time. <laughs> but I don't really know that I'm the most reliable source, you know. So one thing that you did do, you asked who else you should talk to. Uh, talk to, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And you, you handed me off to Bill Curry, who the first thing he said to me was, well, I've met him two or three times. <laughs> didn't he also try to convince you he'd been a private detective? He didn't try to convince me. He did convince me. Um, <laughs> I was, he really had me going for about two minutes. I was like, oh, okay. So a uh, private detective before you became a lawyer. Good to know. Um, he, he, he gave me some really like heartfelt stuff. And he also gave me some 
he just kind of rags on you for about 20 minutes. So right. both of those were, were was, really enjoyable. I was counting on that. So, um, <laughs> you know, actually, I think we have to sort of conclude this segment just to sort of stay on the clock. So what we're going to do, first of all, thanks so much to Bruce Weber and to Jack Cadden and to Vanessa Gold. Watch this movie, Obit, uh, if you like this particular topic. And thanks to Kate Samini. Uh, you're about to hear... Kate's work, uh, Kate uh, wrote this advanced obit of me, turned it back into me as well as into her professor. So we've had it, uh, a special recording of it made uh, for the rest of you to listen to. This is what Kate came up with. If you're about to read this obituary for Connecticut radio show host and columnist Colin McEnroe, he had one request. Bring your jetpacks to a full and complete stop. You shouldn't even have your jetpacks running, he said. It's very dangerous. McEnroe, who has died, was best known for his humorous asides, liberal views, and putting the final nail in the coffin of Senator Joe Lieberman's career as a Democratic senator. Born October 15, 1954, to playwright Robert E. McEnroe and wife Barbara, as an adult, McEnroe wove himself into the landscape of Connecticut media. McEnroe hosted radio shows on WTIC and WNPR, and wrote columns and reported for the Hartford Current, as well as numerous other publications. As a radio show host, his opinions floated through tens of thousands of speakers, first as a drive-time presenter for WTIC, keeping commuters company through the interchange of I-84 and I-91. Later in his career, he gave them something to chew over through their lunch breaks as host on WNPR. McEnroe's record as a host was extraordinarily eclectic, jumping from one topic to the other and showing sincere interest in all of them. Bedbugs, whistling, NASA, independent league baseball all caught his attention at various times, as well as Hal Holbrook, the last of which won the Colin McEnroe Show a first-place finish in the Public Radio News Director's Awards. So you'll be talking about income inequality, and then suddenly the topic is Norse mythology, and you're not sure how you got there? or that you have anything to offer," said his friend Bill Curry, laughing during a 2017 interview. In 2016, McEnroe and his team at the Colin McEnroe Show began to stream the show to Facebook Live regularly, using an American Sign Language interpreter to give the hearing impaired access to the show. McEnroe is proud of this endeavor, saying that the point was to pioneer a method that other shows could easily replicate. He is a deeply empathetic person. Curry said, adding that he saw McEnroe as an egalitarian one as well. Colin pays attention to everybody. Uh, There isn't even a shred of elitism about him. Though multifaceted, McEnroe's work will always be intertwined with Lieberman's fall from grace as a Democratic senator, which began when Lieberman gave a series of speeches in support of the Iraq War, and McEnroe called for constituents to vote Lieberman out of office. Lieberman's subsequent loss in the 2006 Democratic primary and switch to the Independent Party was widely considered by the Connecticut electorate to have begun with McEnroe's interview with the senator. While a political commentator in the nutmeg state, McEnroe was also known to delight in humor as well as the arts. Perhaps his best-known essay impersonated lauded New York Times book critic Michiko Kakutani for McSweeney's Internet Tendency. He moderated celebrity interviews at the Connecticut Forum and the Schubert Theater gave him spoken word performances backed by the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. I want to be remembered as someone who did something every day, McEnroe said. Every day should be different. You should be challenging yourself. Today's show, known by its friends as Sparky, or the show about obits, will pass into peaceful slumber in about 15 minutes. It is survived by its producers, Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. 
The show welcomed one child into the world, Amanda Fish, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Jonathan Winters. In lieu of flowers, please send donations to Colin McEnroe. Go ahead and do that. So just if you tuned in the middle of the last uh, end of the last segment, I'm fine, at least for now anyway. Uh, I'm probably going to make it all the way through this day. That was a prepared advance obit by a journalism student. Uh, All right. So uh, we're going to finish this show by talking about obituaries, kind of the way they used to be done and still are done in some places. And we thought in particular, a small town would be good to know about. Unfortunately, there's not only somebody writing obituaries in a small town, there's somebody who wrote a book about it. She has written the book, uh, Find the Good, Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small Town Obituary Writer. She uh, writes obituaries, has written obituaries for the Chilcot Valley News in Alaska for 20 years, Alaska, where small towns are really small towns. So first of all, uh, Heather Lendy, welcome to our show. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Um, First of all, give us a sense. Well, I mean, maybe just describe what happens when somebody dies in Haines, Alaska. Haines, Alaska is what we're talking about. Well, what happens when someone dies here in Haines is that um, uh, we know about it. It's a small town. Um, Usually I find out um, from a a family member or a friend, or sometimes I I just know because they're my friend. Mm. Um, And then uh, the paper's a weekly paper, so... Uh, and we also don't have a um, a funeral parlor or or a morgue, and so if if someone's going to be buried, it has to be within three days. Mm. And so everything sort of happens at once. There's people who are planning a, a funeral. There's the family trying to figure out the service, and then there's the obituary and hopefully getting it in the paper in time to let people know when when everything's happening. So that's that's sort of the first part about what happens, and, 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 then, um, and, yeah. and I'm part of that because I'm the obituary writer. Right, and I want to ask you about that because that's kind of amazing. In a town so small, about 2,500 people, I think, uh, no funeral parlor, as you say, no morgue, as you say, no hearse, as you say, an ambulance crew brings the casket to the cemetery, but there's a, there's a, a professional obituary writer. I mean, there are much, much bigger communities that don't have anybody dedicating their skills to that uh, cause in, in the way that you do. So uh, why is that? Why, why are you... You. Well, uh, part of it really is because the Chilcot Valley News has been our, our local paper now for 50 years, uh, the weekly paper, and um, that's always been the um, editorial uh, uh, kind of um, guidelines from the paper, that when someone dies in our town, anyone dies, it's news. And so our obituaries are, are very similar to, in a way, to the New York Times um, in that but we see every every life as uh, noteworthy and and worth an exploration, or at least a, a photo and a and a feature, essentially. Um, and when so you it, say it comes down to the paper, um, uh, first of all, doing that instead of just charging the family and and having them put the obits in, and then it came down to just having somebody like me start writing them, and I'm still doing it, and I love it. So when you say sort of like the New York Times, tell us what your approach is. How do you write an obit? Well, um, when we write an obit here, when I write an obit, um, I, uh, you know, you always, we always begin our obit with how the person died, um, and then how, basically sort of the story of why they were significant in our community, what people might know them as. And then I, and I usually know that because I've lived here long enough, um, but if I don't, I ask some questions to family and friends, and then pretty much I spend a lot of time visiting with the family and with friends, with former co-workers, 
my obituaries always have three sources, usually two or three sources that speak about uh, the person's life. Um, sometimes that involves, you know, double checking things like military records or uh, claims to fame in the lower 48 have to sometimes be checked out. Um, and uh, a lot of what I do is uh, I'm kind of an inadvertent grief counselor because I spend a lot of time um, with families at a really tough moment. And at the same time, I'm listening and paying attention and taking notes for um, the piece I'm going to write for them. The other thing that uh, sometimes happens when I do is that my obituaries, I'll often rewrite them um, to help the family with the eulogy mm. and um, use part of the material and, and, and do it that way and, and write it in a, in a family member's voice. Or uh, lately, I've, I've ended up um, giving a few of the eulogies myself from uh, the families have asked me to do that for some people in town. So that's also a little bit different, it sounds like anyway, um, maybe a way in which it might be different from, I mean, those of us who have written obituaries, and, and I have written obituaries um, for newspapers, sometimes you run into the problem with uh, of the family and the friends of the deceased confusing the obituary with a eulogy. And so they'll be saying to you, maybe during the reporting process, well, you're not going to mention that he went to prison for three years, are you? And and then I have to say, or had to say back in those days, well, yeah, that's it's, it's a news story in addition to everything else. Yeah, I'm probably going to mention that. It's part of his story that he went to prison for three years. Um, and that's often very painful for them to deal with. But I, I think if I lived in a town of 2,500, that would be a much harder conversation for me to have. I'd always be having it with people I knew. How do you deal with that? What you do in those situations, what I do, is make sure that that material is included, but you have someone who liked the person or who was a friend of theirs say it mm-hmm. instead of someone who didn't. Yeah. In other words, you wouldn't have like the police chief say, oh, you know, he went to prison for three years. You might have his wife of, of 50 years say, boy, you know, when, when he was young, he, he was in and out of jail several times, but, <laughs> you know, he, he cleaned up and became the man he is now or something. You know, you would do it that way. A lot of it uh, for me is the source of the information. And maybe that's just a small town thing. Um, for instance, I, I wrote an obituary for a woman who was a gold miner who used to shoot at her neighbor. Um, I didn't have the neighbor that she shot at right. say that. I had her best friend who said, oh, you know, you should see, oh, she would just, you know, she, would, she had a running feud and she wasn't afraid to shoot. You know, she never killed anybody, but she shot over everybody's heads a lot. And she, they said that. Yeah. I think that's a that's a really nice way to handle it. You're not sugarcoating it, but you're also maybe not handing the weapon to the person who would be most inclined to uh, to dig it in uh, for the deepest possible wound. Exactly, and and a lot of times, you know, especially when when we know someone's personality, you know, yeah. someone was really kind of a curmudgeon. You you again have someone who admired them say that. You know, he was really a curmudgeon, but you know, he he always donated to the. Uh, you know, the local Humane Society, and he had a soft spot for dogs. Right. So, you know, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that uh, you begin the obit with the cause of death, which I'm very appreciative of because as a neurotic, I always want to know what people died of and uh, whether <laughs> I'm going to die of it too and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, in the past, like 100 years ago, 125 years ago, that was a huge emphasis uh, of obituaries. The New York Times obituary for Theodore Roosevelt goes on for five paragraphs <laughs> at the beginning. The very first five paragraphs are how he died. Um, but I know that you've had some struggles, at least occasionally, with your editor 
predator. Wasn't there like a 99-year-old woman and he demanded cause of death? Yeah, my, that also comes from the, the longtime editor of the Chilkat Valley News, Tom Morfritt, and he recently sold the paper, um, but I'm still with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom just insists on cause of death, and his reasoning is that, you know, this is important uh, demographic information. Are we dying of cancer? Are we dying of, you know, accidental death? All these different things. And he, as he puts it, even just to put heart failure, well, you know, there's very different ways to have your heart stop. And, um, you know, were you, were you shot in the chest or, or did you have a heart attack or were you in your sleep and it stopped? But anyway, with this woman, there was a woman who was 99, hadn't been, ever been to the doctor that we knew of, lived in Haines. There's no hospital here. Um, died in her sleep kind of after saying goodbye to everybody. And I said, Tom, you know, she just died of old age. And he just, he really had a hard time with it. He said, there's no such thing. I said, well, of course there is. You can't just live forever. He goes, how do you know? How do you know that if, if people do everything right, they won't live to be 200? I mean, what's old age? And we've had this discussion around and around. And we, what we ended up doing with that one is I said old age, and he just left the cause of death out. She was 99 and died in her sleep. And that seemed to be good enough for him on that one. So obviously you're an artist at this. And as you say, you're part journalist, part grief counselor, probably part some other things as well. Um, that raises the question about your obituary. I mean, you write all the obituaries in Haynes. Who's going to write your obituary? I don't care. <laughs> I don't think obituaries, I know this might sound blasphemous on a, on a program about obituaries, but I don't think the obituary in and of itself is all that important. It's really... Um, the act of writing it and working with the family and sort of beginning the, the grief process and um, noting down some things that people might not remember otherwise, you know, the mother's maiden name or what year they graduated from high school or what rank they were in the military or something that might just be lost in, in family lore without the obituary. I think it's important to get that. But in terms of my own obituary, I mean, you're writing, you're writing it now. You're, you're writing it by the way you live every single day, I think. That is beautifully put, and it's a perfect place to stop, uh, and we have to anyway. Heather Lendy has written obituaries for the Chilkut Valley News in Alaska for 20 years. She's the author of Find the Good, Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small-Town Obituary Writer. I think you just heard one of those lessons. Thanks to everybody else who helped out today, uh, to Jonathan McPants for producing. Wolfie's been on the board making it sound good. Bill Curry actually played himself today, if you think about it. And thank you for listening. Checking me. Obituary Seeing who's deceased Checking the Obituaries Like an anxious Priest Some may quiet Passing Others Lasting fame I'm checking The obituary